welcome to our first Sunday morning service. Uh, we really sense God moving in and through us, um, and we're super excited about the future. Uh, I know many of you and my family and I are just so grateful for your impact on our community and our own lives. I've been a pastor for 15 years, uh, and when you work for a church for really any amount of time, you can experience hurt and pain in ways that shouldn't be true for Christians. Uh, many of you have experienced Christians that have acted not very Christian. Uh, this past couple weeks, my staff and I have just been getting everything from Amazon.com, right? Like everything is coming via UPS, and we're on a first-name basis with like the UPS workers in our communities, in our neighborhoods, because they're there every single day just dropping off new equipment that we need. And um, uh, the, this last Wednesday, I was driving, I had to move our trailer uh, here kind of for setup, and so uh, I got the U-Haul, and I get an update from Amazon that says that I received a package. And I was like, well, I should probably get that package before I get the trailer and bring it here tonight. And so in the middle of the day, I stop by my house, and I put the package in the car, and then I think, you know what? My wife and kids are inside. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good dad and a good husband, and I'm going to go in and say hello. And so I, I, I open the door, and no one's like, I don't hear anyone. And so then I go upstairs, and Sarah is holding uh, our daughter Ivy, and they're in Dex's room, and Dex is kind of getting ready to lay down on his bed. And I'm trying to be quiet. I don't know why, but I kind of go like this. And then Dex looks at me, and he goes, Daddy. And then Sarah turns and screams louder than I've ever heard anybody scream. <laughs> And I, in hindsight, although my crouching had good motivations and intentions, I kind of looked like a home invader as I was going like this. And, and so then, like, I go in, I hug Dex, and I, and I kiss Ivy, and then I'm getting ready to go back to work, and I lean into kiss Sarah, and she's like, like, she's still affected by the fact that her husband did crouching tiger hidden dragon entering the room and scared her so bad. Uh, even though it was unintentional, the damage was done. And often, well-meaning Christians have done the same. Though their intentions may have been good, their actions spoke louder than their intentions. And many of you have been scared away by church people. Uh, and believe me, I've experienced plenty of these kinds of hurts over the years, too. I've seen church dysfunction, bad leadership, hypocrites, gossip, meanness, self-righteousness at its worst. Any negative impression you've ever had about Christians or church, uh, Sarah and I have seemed to probably experienced all of it. I know that many of you in this room have also experienced it by people that should know better. And I want to let you guys know that that's not what we're about but you cannot build a church on what you're against. You must build your church on what you're for. And that's what these next six weeks are all about. You don't build your church on what you're against or what you don't like. You build it on Jesus. You build it on what you're for. Uh, you see, over the last 15 years being in full-time ministry, I've also seen great beauty, great love, humble and gracious people that radiate the beauty of God. People who would live and die to be a blessing to others. People who give and love so sacrificially, they look just like Jesus. Prodigal church will not be built on what we're against. It will be built on what we're for. And so uh, that's what these next six weeks are. 
Uh, we're going to be looking at our six core values leading up to our launch. And if you kind of want to dive in a little bit deeper on those core values um, and get ahead of the game, the welcome brochure has them listed, and they're also going to be up on our website as well. Now, our first core value is Jesus. I am a father now. I have two kids. This is a picture of my son, Dex, who's almost four, and my daughter, Ivy, who's 11 weeks. And I know, I know. And <laughs> believe it or not, sometimes my son um, is naughty. Sometimes he misbehaves. And I will give him this, though. He's always honest. Okay? He doesn't know how to lie yet. Dex, did you throw that toy at Jesslyn? Yes. Dex, were you mean to mommy? Yes. Dex, did you drop your pants and underwear all the way down to your ankles and go pee-pee in the middle of the grass at a party where everyone was standing around you? Yes. As a consequence, we put him in timeout or we give him another type of consequence. Thank you very much. And like clockwork, I'll say, go to timeout, and then he'll say, no, but I want to be a good boy. I don't want a consequence. I don't want a consequence. I want to be a good boy, Dad. Punishment, judgment, consequence, these are terrifying terms for a child growing up, right? Many of you were that child. And these are still terrifying terms for many people today. We picture God against us. A few years ago, there was this atheist bus campaign. Anybody remember this or hear this? It was big in, in Europe, in the UK, uh, and it made its way to the States as well. But basically, they posted this big ad on buses all across Europe, and the ad said this, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. There was some debate amongst the atheist groups if they should use the word probably or definitely, but they settled on Probably, but that's not the most interesting word or phrase in this sentence. The most fascinating line in this campaign is the phrase, stop worrying. Stop worrying. And that's predicated on the belief that if there is a God, then it's something we should be worried about. In other words, if there is a God, we're screwed. That was the preconceived idea in their mind. Because we all know from religion, God is judgmental and mean, and he likes to throw people in hell, and you might be one of them. And there's this idea that God's against us rather than for us. And this has so been propagated by Christians and non-Christians alike that the antidote for our worry of death seems to be atheism. Well, I can live in a much better universe than that God. Thank you very much. It's a universe where God doesn't even exist. And it's all predicated that God is against us and not for us. And then Jesus arrives on the scene as Emmanuel, God with us, concrete flesh and blood proof that God is for us. He's so for mankind that he would rather die and go to hell than go to heaven without us. Look at Hebrews 2.14. It says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Did you catch that? Jesus actually frees us from our fear of death. He isn't the cause of our fear of death. He's the solution. God isn't up there waiting to send lightning bolts on us when we screw up. He's not waiting to put us in time out or to make us face a corner. Jesus doesn't want you to fear. Jesus wants you. That's it. There's no fear in love. 
Look at Hebrews 1. It says this, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, another translation says character, of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. He's the definitive word. There's a father reading a newspaper um, with his son kind of competing for his attention. Many of you have been there. He's trying to have breakfast, have coffee, read his paper, and his boy won't stop uh, talking to him. So finally, the dad noticed a large ad in the newsprint showing the picture of the earth. And so thinking to divert his son's attention, he cuts up a bunch of pieces of this earth, lays it flat on the table, and says, son, put this puzzle back together. And he goes, okay, dad. And the father goes back to his paper. And just in a few moments, son says, uh, I got it, dad. It's fixed. And he goes, how did you put it together so fast? He says, it's easy. On the other side of the paper, there's a picture of a man. And once I put the man together, the world came together as well. If we get Jesus right, our worldview, our lives become much more clear. If we get Jesus right, everything else falls together. Now, in my own spiritual journey, I've always been enthralled with Jesus. But after finishing seminary in 2007, the past 10 years, have, I've kind of gone through like a deconstruction of my faith and a reconstructing of it, putting it back together again. I have a new passion for the Bible and its core message of pointing people to Jesus. But if you've ever read the Bible, you know, there's some weird stuff in there. Um, for example, Deuteronomy 23.1, it says this, No one who has damaged testicles shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Okay. Leviticus 21 echoes that, says that no one who's a worship leader, which is a priest, and you can't be one if you have bad skin, bad eyesight, bad posture, too short, or, you guessed it, if you have damaged testicles. What's, the, what's with the damaged testicles again? This is making half of us very uncomfortable. Leviticus 20, 27 says that mediums must be put to death, which makes me very happy that I'm an extra large. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you skinny people, you got something coming. <laughs> You're in trouble. What's the deal here? How are we going to be drawn closer to Jesus by passages like this? After all, aren't we called to bring the whole word to the whole person to the whole world? All the Bible? Can't we just leave some of the weird stuff behind? That's a sermon series for another time. Maybe we'll do a sermon series on the weird stuff of the Bible. But the Bible's not a painting to be looked at, but a window to be looked through. And through that window, we see Jesus. Christ followers believe in the inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God, and his name is Jesus. John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father. Jesus says this in John 5, says this, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. See, there was the religious people during Jesus' time who had the Bible front back memorized, knew every law, every rule. But did you know that you could know the Bible and still be a jerk? <laughs> 
But when you're in love with Jesus, he transforms us more and more into his likeness. He says, the scriptures point to me. All these religious people knew the Bible front and back. And Jesus says, but you don't realize those very scriptures testify to me. The scriptures point to me. The best part of the Bible is that it points us to Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, even Leviticus, it's all about Jesus. We want to read the Bible Jesusly because he's the definitive word of God. And as we follow Jesus, we'll change the world. That's God's plan. The church, us. This is something Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. If we were to actually follow Jesus, it would lead us to all kinds of incredible things. Uh, One historian writes that one of the ways Christianity spread like wildfire in the ancient world was because of the way Christ followers treated people who were sick. How they followed the Jesus' teaching in loving others. Leprosy meant isolation, and isolation meant death. You didn't touch, you didn't go near someone who had leprosy. There was this church father named Basil. Here's a picture of him on the screen. Uh, He had this idea that, what if we built a place to love and care for the lepers and the sick, and if they don't have the money, we could raise the money for it? And you know, that was the beginning of what would become known as hospitals. Hospitals were started because of someone following Jesus. Another follower of Jesus, John Henry Duneau, in the 1800s, couldn't stand the sound of wounded soldiers in battle, agonizing. And ultimately, uh, he decided to devote his life to helping wounded soldiers in, in the middle of a tragedy or a battle. And it became what we now call the Red Cross. So every time you see that Red Cross, disasters all across our world, that's actually a thumbprint of Jesus. That was started because followers of Jesus actually followed Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. He never says, stay right there. There's a movement to it, right? We shouldn't stay the same. Christ followers aren't sinless, but we should sin less as we pursue the living God. The kind of God you believe in shapes you. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What, what we think about God is the most important thing about who we are. How we think about God changes and shapes our character. There's this story found in the centuries just before Jesus. There was a scroll, and the scroll wrote a story above a woman and her husband. And the husband leaves his house every week to go worship at the temple. And the temple was the temple of Diana in Ephesus. And she was a fertility goddess. And so part of that worshiping of a fertility goddess was you would go into the temple and part of your sacred duty of worship was to go sleep with the temple prostitutes. And the husband would do this every week. On the afternoons as the husband left his wife and said, bye honey, I'm going to the temple for worship. She, she said that he had some certain smile. The husband would do this every week. I'm off to worship. The story on the scroll comes to an end with the husband smiling, waving goodbye one afternoon, and the wife saying, if only his gods were different, then he'd be different. Who our God is shapes who we are. Who you worship, who your examples in life, how you live. Asking yourself that question honestly, who do I want to emulate more than anybody else on the planet? Be honest with yourself, even if you know you won't like the answer. 
Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a famous person. Maybe it's someone who's ahead of you in your job or career. We, we are called to emulate Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, He is your example. You must follow in his steps. The word example here refers to a copybook, which is like a, what a, uh, it was prepared by a teacher uh, for pupils to copy. And it's perfect. It's to, it's to be the model that the ch- child tries to copy to write. Jesus is who we copy. He's our copybook. Now, if we as followers of Jesus would grab this, man, what a difference it would make in the world. Everything, everything that we are, all of our interactions with every person, if we base it on what we see in Christ, it has intense ramifications. Um, it's like when something happens that bothers you in the morning and then you let it affect you all day. You guys ever been there? Man. You get to work and your boss says, can I see you in my office? And you go and you get blamed for something. He criticizes you, something that wasn't even your fault or something that you worked really hard on. And then you get back to your desk and now your coffee's cold. You notice Toby in HR, like slurping his coffee. (laughs) It's bothering you. Jim is humming the same song again and again all day long. You try and stay busy with busy work. You try and pull out your stapler, but now it's like enveloped in jello. You're so frustrated and you're about ready to snap and time couldn't move fast enough, right? Then you get home after a long day of work, you close the door and you say, I have had such a bad day. Did you though? Or was it a bad five minutes that you milked all day long? Right? No one is better at feeling sorry for you than you, okay? I am the best at feeling sorry for myself. Ask my wife. We have this ongoing joke. She'll call me out on it all the time. And we have this ongoing joke. When I start to throw a pity party for myself, she'll, she'll go, John, uh, pity party of one? John, John. <laughs> and it makes me smile and kind of get over feeling sorry for myself. And often we, we, can, we can spin stories about how we're the wronged ones all day long, right? And you might be right. It just doesn't help anything. It actually doesn't make your situation any better, probably worse. If Jesus is our example, do we ever see that kind of attitude in, in him? Can you picture Jesus as a grump? Like Carol spills you know, coffee on his desk. Thanks, Carol. Nice. Someone at work tries to help him with some paperwork, and he says, well, then you do it then. People in the office are saying, and stay away from Jesus. He's in a mood. <laughs> Listen, if Jesus doesn't fit the scene, neither should we. Neither should we. Philippians 2.5 says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. If we're following Jesus, we pray blessings for our boss after he criticizes us. That's like Jesus. We love our coworkers instead of cursing them. That's like Jesus. We do everything we can to love those around us with the sacrificial love that Jesus showed us and demonstrated for us on the cross. That's Jesus. What does that look like for you this week? Like, let's just get really practical. What does it look like for you to truly live out the love of God in your life? Is it calling that friend that like always wants to hang out, but like you don't ever really want to hang out? 
in making that effort and going to lunch with them? Is it forgiving someone that doesn't deserve your forgiveness? That's Christ-like. Is it reaching out to someone? Maybe it's doing the chores that your spouse hates to do, and you just do them anyway without ever being asked. Just to show, to sacrificially love your spouse. What practical ways can you show love to others? Because Jesus links together the love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? This was a perfect opportunity for him just to say, just just me, just know me, and you're good. Just you know, don't lie. What's the greatest? There's 623 mitzvot, uh, commandments in the scriptures. What's the greatest one? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're inextricably linked. If you want to love God, the, the natural byproduct of that is loving others. Let God open our eyes to see where we can love, to see Live out the great commandment. It's all about Jesus, and Jesus couldn't separate love of God and love of others. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band up in a few moments, and there we'll close with one song. And I want you guys to do me just a thought experiment. Picture yourself at a party, okay? You're at a party, lots of people there, and you hear a number of people at the party talking about how, how cool someone named Grace is. Everyone's talking about Grace and how cool she is, that she's awesome, that she's so great and everything. And then you find out that Grace is also at the party. And let's say you've heard enough intriguing information that you decide that you want to get to know her, and suddenly Grace walks into the room that you're at. Clearly, the best way to get to know Grace would to be go up and talk with her. Now, pause that. Religion is like the person at the party who talks about grace to everyone except grace. You see, if grace is a message, if grace is a collection of facts, if grace is an equation, then you can actually get to know grace from anybody. It's just intellectual knowledge, facts. But if grace is a person, then the only way you can get to know grace is through grace. So back at the party, there you are trying to muscle up enough courage to talk to grace. You keep talking to everyone except her. Wouldn't it be wonderful while you were trying to muster up the courage, grace took the initiative, came over to you and got to know you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if grace told you that she'd been looking for you and been looking forward to getting to know you all this time as well. That's the message of Jesus. That God is for us, not against us. That Jesus took the initiative to give us abundant life in him. You were the joy set before him and that's why he endured the cross. He had you at the forefront of his mind and being when he went to that cross. You, who you are, the deepest parts of who you are, faults and all, he loves all of you and he wants all of you. That's the scandalous nature of God's grace, that he knows every bad thought or thing you've ever done, and he loves us anyways. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
That's grace. That's Jesus. Are we people of the book? Kind of. We're people of the person. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your son. Thank you so much for the ways that you're moving in us, that you're leading us, God, that you're taking us to new places, to new uh, depths. God, I pray that we know this. You define eternal life in the book of John. The eternal life is this, that they may know me, that there is a present reality to our eternal destination. So God, may we be a part of bringing heaven to earth. May we be different here now. May we love, may we find people to love. May we act and live sacrificially towards others, God. Forgive us of the ways in which our intentions are right, but our actions are wrong. And let those line up to reflect your mercy, your compassion, your goodness, your beauty, and your love. Who's your example? Who do you want to follow above everything else? Who do you most want to be like? My encouragement for you this morning, August 13th, 2017, is that you choose Jesus. And you may not know all the ins and outs of the Bibles and the rules and the laws and the commandments, but if you get Jesus right, you get it all. Love God, love people. God draws nearer to you, draws nearer to a world that so desperately needs you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you.